Welcome back. Thanks for coming. You know, you could have taken a nap or something like that after dinner. So, um, my name's Ben. I'm the campus minister at William & Mary. Uh, you guys have heard of me. Oh, no. Um, um, so, um, guess what school they're from. Uh, and so, uh, we're going to keep going with Romans 8, shocker, and we're going to pick up uh, where we left off this morning. And I love that the end of the last passage uh, tiptoes into what we're getting into here. And so, without further ado, um, Romans chapter 8, uh, so verse 18. Do we have it? No, we don't. Okay. So, look on or listen. And, um, you know, the first hearers of the book of Romans didn't have a copy in their hands, so if you just like to listen to it, you just listen to it. It's fine. God will do his thing. So, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those, who, those whom he called, he also justified. And them, those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's a lot. We need some help. Let's pray. Lord God, um, be with us. Speak to us. Um, come to us in our... In our sadness, in our sorrow, uh, in our doubts, in our joys, um, in our confidence, and uh, in our doubt. Be with us, I pray. Amen. Uh, a book I read recently that I really, really like is called uh, Everything Sad is Untrue by Daniel Neary. Anybody else? Nobody? It's great. It's awesome. I'm going to read like half of it to you right now. Um, and of course, he's borrowing that line from J.R.R. Tolkien, where Sam, at the in, after all the stuff has happened, if you haven't seen the movies, but anyway, bad things happen. And this little guy named Sam that everybody loves uh, wakes up after all the bad stuff is done. And he's like, is everything sad untrue? And this is just a passage just kind of begging for that one. Uh, but uh, Daniel Neary, well, I, I'll just tell you what the book's about because he summarizes the entire book in the first chapter. I'm going to read it to you. He said, he's going to give us the kid version. He says this. If you want the kid version of the story, here goes. Golly gee, hiya, I'm just a dumb kid who likes ice cream. I was born in Iran, happy face, to a family so wealthy that my grandpa's grandpa was called a king in the history books. There was murder and intrigue and Ferris wheels in the desert and house full of swans and sapphire blue river and a chest full of gold coins. We'll get to all that. Then my mom got caught up helping the underground church and got a fatwa on her head, which means the government wanted her dead. Oh, no face. We had to sneak out of the country, but my daddy stayed behind. Disappointed face. Maybe not even all that surprised face. See Willis's sermon this morning about how we have 100 different relationships. His spoiler alert, he had a complicated relationship with his dad. Um, we were guests of the Prince of Abu Dhabi for three hours and then homeless. And there I cut my head open and they sewed it back together. 
And then we went to a refugee camp in Italy where I became a great thief until we got asylum in Oklahoma where we try to act normal, raised eyebrow face like you wouldn't believe it. I think I skipped the part where my grandmother tried to assassinate her husband, failed and was exiled instead. And most of the blood and the secret police and the torture. Sci-face. Listen, the quick version of this story is useless. Let's agree to have a complicated conversation. It's a really good book. Everything Sad Comes Untrue. That's the title, so hang in there. Parentheses, A True Story. It's his memoir. Um, I love that line. Let's agree to have a complicated conversation. Um, this passage is about suffering and sorrow. And I want to ask the same thing that Daniel asks his reader, gentle reader, he often calls us. Um, can we agree to have a complicated conversation? And I think that needs to be said because I think that we tend to either be naive and think things are going to work out just fine and life should, up, should be great, particularly um, if you're a Christian according to all the great things that we just read in the first half of this uh, chapter. Or we, we, we get cynical and bitter and jaded. And the reality is that life is complicated and suffering is complicated. And I love, I wanted to reference that book because it's a, if you didn't pick up on it, he had a life uh, full of a lot of suffering, but it's a life of suffering that he looks back on with a whole lot of hope, which is what this passage is really about. And so I think Romans 8 here, we tend to take chat, verse 18, which is like, it's, the suffering now is not worth comparing with the glory to come. And verse 28, which is like the most abused verse maybe in the entire Bible, God works all things together for good. And we want to take those verses and kind of wrap saran wrap on everything that comes in between. Just kind of cover it up. And you know, you put something that you've wrapped too many times in the saran wrap in the fridge, and you don't even know what's inside there anymore. And we tend to do that with those verses, and we actually miss the point of why Paul thought we needed to know it. Why he wanted to tell us all that great theology in the first place. Um, and it's so much more powerful and so much better than our naive spiritualizing or our cynical nihilism. So, and yeah, we only have about half an hour here before you start falling asleep. So it's a complicated conversation, and this is just part of it, and you're going to continue it in a small group, okay? So a few points here from the passage. The first is this. And it's really obvious. I won't spend a lot of time here because you're persuaded of it already. It's just that suffering is real. Suffering is real. Um, this is not a sermon illustration. I'm not like scoring points here, but like JMU, like your campus minister is not here because he buried his brother-in-law today who got hit by a, fell, a tree fell on the man out of nowhere. And he was there because his brother-in-law was there to visit Joe's older brother who's in hospice right now dying of stomach cancer and is going to go any time now. He's been suffering for a really long time. And then other complicated things going on around that. And he's not here right now with us. All of you have stuff going on. Throughout this passage, there's this refrain, it's talking about suffering, it's talking about groaning. But have you ever groaned? If you haven't groaned, you know, like when you're kind of crying so hard that you can't say anything? If you've never experienced that in your life, like you, you will eventually, or you probably need to, but you've numbed it. When have you groaned or come close to it? It could be an injury, like just a straight up physical injury. It could be a breakup, something as simple as that. Like you had hopes for this relationship, it didn't work out. Someone dies that you love, your parents got divorced. You just quietly cry whether you don't groan aloud or not. Maybe it's just like the impossible standards that your parents put on you or that you put on yourself or that the culture sets for you of like what you're supposed to be, what you're supposed to look like. 
the impossible standard, that's a good one, but that God himself sets, and you know you don't meet it, like the actual like suffering because of like mistakes that we've made, sins we've committed, things that we have done wrong, and now we're just like living in the results of that, and it's horrid. It's the worst. And all we can do is groan, and I just want you to find a little bit of comfort. First, the, the scripture's showing us here that that's not how it's supposed to be, but it is the way that it is right now. Suffering is real, unless it's totally normal. That if you're going through something hard, that's normal. We'll talk more about that later. It's to be expected, which saves us from being naive. But, but what Paul's offering us here is not stoicism or some sort of pseudo-stoicism where we just sort of cut ourselves off like objective reality is hard and I can detach and just like get a mindfulness app and breathe and then I'll be okay. Though those are awesome. <laughs> and it's not self-help. It's not becoming your best self or a better version of you necessarily, though it does end that way. And it's not making the pain stop. That is not what he offers us now. Because some grief is good, just ask Charlie Brown and Michael Scott. And it's not about figuring it out either. That verse where he says, you know, the Spirit prays before the Father to know his will, in, in line with his will. Those words in his will are not actually in the original text. He just says before him. We'll talk about that in a second. A lot of times, if we're going through something hard, we're going like, why am I going through this? Let me figure this out. Like, Romans 8.28 might be true. All things work together for good. Let me find out. Let me decode this moment so that I can see somehow that how this will somehow work out for my good. He doesn't tell you how it works out for good. He just says it will. It's not your job to figure it out. I've seen so many people suffer so much more than they needed to because they were trying to figure out why. And going nuts. So it's not all of those things, but then like, what actually is it? It's not stoicism. It's not getting the answers. It's not having the answer key from God. It's not ignoring the pain. It's not numbing the pain. So what is it? Well, this, this is given to us. Chapter is given to us to give us hope in the suffering. Like actually in, in the moment of it, in the groaning, that we would have this thing that Paul calls hope. So how? How do we get that? Um, there's a bunch here, but uh, first, so suffering is real. But second, uh, suffering is shared. We share it. And I don't mean like, I pass my suffering off to somebody. Yeah, I'm suffering, so I'm going to make you suffer. Sharing is caring, but it's shared. It's something that, that we're not going through alone. Your groaning is real, but you're not doing it alone. Well, who's it shared with? First uh, in the passage, it's shared with creation. Did you catch that? Like creation, like meaning like all the stuff out there, that mountain view today, the stream over there, Mars, that picture from the satellite that everybody shared on Twitter for a minute. Not the pepperoni one, but the, the real one. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. I'm gonna ask you for a second to try, I think one thing the Bible does for us modern people is it helps us re-enchant our world. We're a disenchanted society. We have technological answers and solutions to everything and we're often just sort of cut off from creation or we pretend that we are. Um, another book that I read that, I want to use it as an illustration so bad, but it would spoil it, but it's a book called Piranesi by Susanna Clark. Anybody? Anybody? Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. It's like Harry Potter and the grown-ups. It's an awesome, awesome book. Also a memoir, but fiction, okay? Um, but just go get it. It's great. Um, Piranesi. But what I, what I will tell you about it is it's the main character in it. You're reading his journal, basically. And he has this intuitive relationship with everything around him. Like he talks to ocean waves and seagulls. And he lives in this place. He doesn't know how he got there, but he's just sort of like sweet, innocent, naive in one sense, but so genuine that it's not a bad thing that he's naive. And he lives in this 
mysterious world that you kind of have to unpack and do a Google search of the word Piranesi to figure out what's going on there. And he just talks about everything around him. He's like, he calls it the house. He's like, the house loves me and I love the house. And everything I get, I receive from the house. He's just got this intuitive relationship with everything around him. He's like communicating with inanimate objects, stones and waves and then animals. And he thinks that they're telling him things. All through the Bible, creation is pictured like that. All the trees will clap their hands. Jesus says, if, if you don't praise me, these rocks would cry out. And we sort of instinctively go, that's just like an illustration. It's not literal. He doesn't actually mean that. But like, what if he does? One of the reasons I, I like Susanna Clark, who wrote Paranasi in the other book, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell, these themes are run through that book as well. She was deeply influenced by a man named Owen Barfield. Have you ever heard of the Inklings? C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and then some other guys. Owen Barfield was one of the other guys. That C.S. Lewis and Tolkien say like, Owen's influence on us in our conversations over beers at the Eagle and Child shaped the way we wrote our stories, okay? All the stuff that's so cool about those things, if you know them, if you've read them, they're like, Owen was huge in that. And Owen had this whole theory he called the evolution of consciousness. And when you look through the history of the world, pre-technology world, both in the Bible and in outside sources, there's a sense that human beings just seem to have this consciousness that the creation was actually in relationship with them and with the divine and was talking as if it had a personality. And you see it in the scripture too. And I'm not saying like, trees have feelings, hug them. You know, like, um, don't hurt the feeling of the stream, but get your pollution. We read it, we go like, let's not pollute stuff. And it's like, Paul wasn't thinking about pollution. Like that's a decent application for us now, for sure. Like that's great. But he meant something more. He talks about creation, longing with eager expectation for the revealing of the sons of God. And here he pictures the cosmos, the Milky Way. And that stream out the back door, with a crane neck, with that eager expectation, the language has the sense of like, when you're like a kid and you're like looking up or like when Harry Potter's like, what's that pensive thing in Dumbledore's closet and like stretching the neck out and like, just like, what? Like this is long, like I can't wait. A kid on Christmas morning, like mom and dad get out of bed, let's go. He said the universe is longing for us to be revealed for the work of what human beings were made to be and to do in relationship with God to be shown. And it can't wait so much so that the creation is like in pain, frustrated. Verse 20, the creation was subjected to futility. That word futility is the same word that's used in the Greek version of Ecclesiastes where he repeats vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Futility of futilities, all is futility. Saying like this frustrated sense of like, there's a meaning here, but I can't grab it. It's right there. I can almost taste it, but I can't have it with an outstretched neck. The futility, not willingly, it wasn't the creation's fault. Sometimes we read these verses or misunderstand Genesis 3 and be like, bad creation where the evil reigns and let's isolate ourselves from it. You know, and we can do whatever we want because it's disposable. Um, but here he's saying, like, not the issue. It, the creation to create this, not because of, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. So like Adam sins and then it's subjected in the curse of God in hope, though, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, namely us, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The universe wants you to be set free so that it will be set free along with you. The idea of that futility, again, the vanity, the frustration there, it makes me think of like the LeBron James meme that maybe you remember like uh, when J.R. Smith and one of the final, one of the 47 finals that LeBron James was in and they didn't win this one and it's because like this guy named J.R. Smith got a rebound off a missed free throw and there was like three seconds left and they were down by one and he took the ball and dribbled to half court and stood there and then LeBron calls a timeout. Have you seen the meme? You know what I'm talking about? Picture of LeBron James just going like, <laughs> like you just, you, you're a professional basketball player and you were right in front of the goal and you could have just made the lay. Like, I'm the guy, I'm the king, but like, you, come on, man. Like, it's a layup, dude. And you took it, like, I, you just exasperated. Look at this. Like, LeBron is creation. 
we are J.R. Smith. And this picture that, that Paul's giving us is the whole creation is going, guys, come on, come on, come on, come on. We want to clap our hands. We, we pour forth speech night after night. The scripture says of the stars. The heavens proclaim the glory of God and like, get on board, guys. You're a professional basketball player. Make the layup. Hoping for our freedom. So the whole universe could be released from this bondage. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. We heard a lot about some childbirth this morning. I won't tell you the story of my kids getting born. It's the same story. Well, one of them, like, we, my wife didn't get the thing in time. And it was like, have you ever seen uh, the movie Big Fish at the beginning? And, like, it's sort of this, like, a dad telling his son stories and everything sort of mythologized. And it's like the day he was born, he just, like, shot out of his mom down the hallway. Like, the doctor drops him and he just, like, shoots down this really long. That was Benjamin. He just went flying out. But it was painful. It was a lot of blood, a lot of screaming, a lot of agony, a lot of groaning. So it's not just, like, exasperated like this. But the creation is, like, in, intense pain for you. Not shame on you, but for you, with you. Your suffering is shared. The creation itself. Second, it's shared with each other. 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves. And he's talking to Christians who have the first fruits of the Spirit. So he's been going on and on the last half of the chapter about how great the Spirit is and the Spirit's with us and empowering us and making us cry out, Daddy, and all the stuff. We have that, even us. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Like you're suffering, you're groaning, it is unique to you. Like I'm not saying I know exactly how it feels, whatever it is that you're going through. It's unique, but you're not alone with each other. This is why Paul later say, weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. We have tear ducts on our face and not our armpits so that others can look in our eyes while we cry, so that we can't hide it. But we figure out very young how to do that. We were never made to. It's made to be shared with each other. Quick application here, if you are struggling, and whether it's like you're in pain, a chronic illness, there's some devastating thing that's happened to you, you are not alone. We, we believe this lie somehow that because we have the spirit, we ought to be able to take verse 18 and verse 28 and like, we're cool. And we don't groan, we don't cry, like stuff's hard, but we kind of, we soldier on. And we're kind of happy about it too. Because it's going to work out for good. So I'm not worried. Which is a lie. And actually not what the Bible tells us to do. Tell other people about it. And try to be the person that someone could tell that to. And just know that they could. Bring it out. And whether it's like a struggle of like personal pain or whether it's something you're wrestling with. Just in your own mind and thoughts. Especially if you were raised in the church. Um, and you're starting to question things, man, I'll tell you what, y'all's parents, if you, if you grew up, if your parents raised you to be Christian, they're like terrified. They give all of us like thousands of dollars, all the staff and interns and campus ministers like to like, keep my kid a Christian, please, <laughs> you know? And I'm really glad and thankful for it and I love them. They're awesome and let's keep it coming. Um, but man, I hate it when somebody has been wrestling with a hard question that's just this existential crisis, whether it's a philosophical issue or a life pattern issue or a question about their, their sexuality or their identity, and then like down the road and it never came out to anybody around them. I don't think you've got to tell me or your campus minister necessarily, but we would love for you to. We want to be that person that's safe, and if we're not, tell us why. But nothing good happens in secret. Nothing good happens alone. And I hate it when I like learn after the fact and it's already done. I'm like, we could, man, we could have talked about that. 
But there's something in the water in the church and in Christian culture that says, like, if you're struggling, if you're groaning, something's wrong. And so we're a little ashamed. We're ashamed. We're embarrassed. And we don't tell people. And we think we're the only one, but we're not. Paul himself says to all of them, we ourselves who groan, who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly. Your suffering is shared. Maybe you could sit someone down and just say, can we agree to have a complicated conversation? <laughs> like I'm kind of going through some stuff. Verse 24. For in this hope we were saved, in reference to that, like the, in the hope he's referring to is the future redemption of our bodies. It's funny that he says that we're longing, we're eagerly awaiting our adoption as sons when he just got done telling us that we're already adopted, crying out of a father. But he's saying it hasn't come to fruition yet. Like we haven't been resurrected. We don't, we don't get to play in the pool yet, but we know that it's there, it's coming. But in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, but who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Um, the whole point, he's talking about hope and how that's the antidote to this stuff, right? But his whole point is saying, you don't see it yet. That's why it's hope. Stop pretending to be happy and put together and start groaning together. Because you already are. We already are. Because the resurrection is yet to come. We're on that in a minute. It's not yet arrived. And yet, it's funny, I heard you notice he says, like, we wait for it eagerly. And creation's pictured as like crane in the neck. And then he says, and we wait for it with patience. Don't those feel like opposite things? How do you, how do you wait patiently and eagerly at the same time? Quick picture of that. Um, I get to do a lot of weddings. And uh, my, one of my favorite ones ever, it was actually kind of a train wreck, though, but like, so there's uh, a couple, the, the wedding itself was cool because it was bilingual. And a, a student in our ministry named Jenny had done a year abroad uh, in Germany and had fallen in love with a German farm boy uh, named Hans Martin. He was a bee farmer. Um, and uh, so it was like a German major in RUF like translated the notes and the stuff and then they brushed it up and we were like there. And like, this is really cool like old chapel that's like around the corner from her house. It's like a historic building and because it was a small building like we were all supposed to come in and go up front before, and her dad was going to bring her from her driveway over and they were going to give us like the radio signal and stuff and we're standing there and the piano's playing up front and stuff and then we get the signal from the back because we don't want Hans Martin to see Jenny yet, you know. So we got to go up front. And they're like, go, go, go. And we go to the front and we stand in there. Me and Hans Martin, we're like up front and our Grimsman are over here and translators are over there and we're like hanging and they play through the song and then they play another song and another song and then like a song that they're not supposed to play, just like Justin Bieber or something. And they just start back at the beginning and start playing all the songs again and again. And we're standing in this little chapel and I kid you not, it's like 25 minutes. We're standing there. And I'm like, all right. And I'm like, uh, did Jenny go like, a German farm boy? What was I thinking? Like, I'm not moving. I'm not going to be a bee farmer's wife. Like, where am I? You know, like, I'm like, I don't, like, maybe this, uh, I don't know. Like, it's kind of, mm. And I kind of, I look, I look over at Hans Martin. I'm like, his English is good. You know, I'm like, are you okay? And the microphone picked it up. <laughs> like, are you okay? And he's like, she'll be here. Like, but he's bouncing. He's eagerly patient and patiently eager. She's coming. I know her. She'll be here. And she, yeah, she, she came. Like, that's why it's one of my favorites. I'm like, the worst day of my life. Um, that's how we long for the redemption, the resurrection of a body, in the suffering. And finally, it's just shared with the Holy Spirit. We share it with each other, share it with the whole creation. It's better. Look at this, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, helps us in our weakness, because we're weak. We do not know what to pray for, as we all did you know that? Especially in our suffering, we, we don't know. Paul wrote that, first person plural, we. 
a guy who wrote like most of the New Testament says like, I don't know what to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes, goes between, intercedes between him and God, us and God the Father, intercedes for us, here's that word again, with groanings, too deep for words. I read a little commentary, theologian, last name Hodge, that your campus ministers may have heard of, and he says, now, we don't actually, we aren't actually supposed to believe that the Spirit itself, first he calls the Spirit it, not he, anyway, three persons of the Trinity, Charles Hodge, um, not three it's of the Trinity, anyway, he doesn't actually like, not know what to say, and he doesn't like actually groan. But the verse in the Bible says, but the Spirit himself emphasis, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Um, the Holy Spirit teaches you to cry, Abba, Father, from the heart, and when you are in pain and when you are suffering, he is groaning on the ground in front of the Father because you are, and you don't know what to say. And it's not, he's God, right? Like, this is what Hodge was worried about, like, He's not surprised, like God knows what's going on and he's never lost for words. Let's not think he's dumb. That's not what Paul's saying. Charles Hodge, come on. He's moaning. Not because he can't find the words, but because words are insufficient. Because the grief and the pain of this world is inexpressible. Apart from tears. And that God himself would do that with you and for you. He intercedes for you. He goes between, he represents you. And he takes your groaning and your total lack of words, not even knowing what you're supposed to say. And he takes that nothing and transmogrifies your prayers into some perfect, something perfect, even when you're speechless. And the Father and the Spirit are so one. It says, he who searches hearts, that's God the Father. He and the Spirit are the same mind. He's like, I know that. I hear you. I got it. Let's do this. Suffering is real, suffering is shared, and it helps us have hope and perseverance. And finally, suffering has an end. Suffering has an end. And I mean the word end in two ways. One, as in like the end of the book, like the end, the normal way, the way we usually use it. It will stop one day. It says it in verse 18. Not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. Suffering now, it's not even worth comparing. The future glory is so great, and the suffering is going to end. And again, in verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. In the end, it will work out for good. The suffering will stop. It's going to have a good purpose to it. But I mean it also in a second sense, which I think might even be more important. An end in the sense of the goal. Sometimes if you've ever heard the phrase, like, what is the chief end of man? What is our purpose? What is our telos? What is our goal? What is the purpose of suffering? What is it pointing to? Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now he says that he foreknew us, knew us in advance so that we would be conformed into the image of his son and that the suffering is part of that. I just want to point something out here. All through this passage, this language of like the creation being in pain, we might call that being cursed. If you know the story of the Bible, on the second page, mankind falls into sin, and what happens as a result? The creation itself is cursed. Thorns and thistles, cursed be the ground because of you. Thorns and thistles it will produce for you a frustrated relationship between us and the world around us. And the second part was, and in pain, you will bring forth children. Curse on the man, curse on the woman. And here we have groaning, 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 groaning in the pains of childbirth. 
a replay of the fall, replay of the curse, but it's working backwards so that you'll be conformed to the image of the Son of God. Genesis 3 says curse, 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 ground, 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 groaning, groaning, groaning. Chapter 1 says, and God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In his own image. Paul is using this language from the first two pages of the Bible on purpose. Saying we're going to push back through this curse and get right back to the beginning. And you will be made into the very image of God. So that you would be transformed into the image of Jesus. To be made like him so that we can be with him. So we're groaning with hope because as in the pains of childbirth, I've got four kids, missed the epidural on Benjamin who shot across the hallway, had some help with some modern medicine on the other three, but even then it's like pretty painful and bloody and tough. Not to mention the nine months prior and the postpartum and the child rearing. Not once has my wife ever looked at any of our kids and been like, you know what, that labor just was not worth it. That was, we look at our children and we say, I can't say. I stood there and watched. <laughs> she reached out for my hand on the Benjamin one and the doctor was like, don't. Like, I, I don't need to set your fingers. As he told me afterwards, like, I didn't want to have to set your fingers after. So I've had husbands have their fingers broken. Um, she's in a lot of pain and she remembers that, sure. There's no comparison. You know, that suffering was real. Intensely so, but, but the babies, the kids, are, are worth it, right? So we labor with hope. We groan with hope. And like, look, there's buckets of theology. I mean, like verse 28 and 29. I don't know that this stuff's really important. Let's just skip it. Um, I'm kidding. There's tons of really great stuff here, but the main point is that God loves you and he's going to make good on it and and that it's worth it. Everything you're going through now because of all the great stuff here. Um, And none of it smothers the groaning or silences the groaning or makes it go away. Now, but it does make it meaningful and purposeful and a little bit more bearable and a little bit more worth pushing through. I'm going to close with just a couple of things. Lord of the Rings, because we got to, because I mentioned it at the beginning, and then St. Augustine. So there's this moment in the Lord of the Rings, if you don't know the story, again, Sam, who later will be like, did everything sad come on true? But before that happened, there's this moment where he's with his best friend Frodo. If you don't know the story, they're two little guys who have like all the evil in the world and this thing that they need to destroy, and they're all by themselves. And Sam adores his friend Frodo, looks up to him, has admired him his entire life, would do anything for him, and has proven that over and over and over again. And he's watching his best friend become a shell of himself as he's being absorbed by evil. And he's miles from where they need to get to destroy this thing. And he's in this land and he hasn't seen a green leaf in weeks and hasn't had cold water and is exhausted and is living in this like putrid, stench, hot place. And he's laying down and Frodo's like falling asleep and groaning in his sleep. And Sam's just sitting there like, I can't do this. And I cannot go a step further. I'm done. And then, remember the creation speaking to us, right? There, peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tor high up in the mountain, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a moment. And the beauty of it smote his heart. And he looked up out of that forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing, that there was a light and high beauty out there forever beyond its reach. It's a shaft, clear and cold. Romans 8 is coming to you. Verse 28, verse 18. Paul is saying, here's a cold drink. It's hard right now and it's hot, but look up. There's something more out there. It's worth fighting for. It's worth continuing with. It's worth groaning now with hope and eager, patient expectation. It is worth it. It is there. It is sure. All that truckload of theology right there is just there to say, like, it's there. It's as fixed as the North Star. For new, justified, called, glorified, 
One last thing. St. Augustine uh, wrote a bunch of books. If you've never heard of him, check them out. In a sermon once uh, that I think was titled On the Pure Love of God, he said this to like, his congregation, his church. He said, I want you to imagine that God offers you a deal. On the one hand, like, here's the deal. All your suffering can stop. You can be healthy. All your pain will be gone. Nothing will be impossible for you. You will possess the entire world. I will give you anything that you want. You will never die, never suffer, and never have anything that you do not want and always have anything that you do want. Eternal life. And we can even add, like, I want to be a good person. Like, I want to be like, good people, people like me. I want to be like, make the world a better place. I want to have my own universe. Throw whatever you want in the deal. What would that be for you, this offer? Like, this, I, this, this was the thing that I just so longed for. All my goals met. All my suffering done. Because you'll have all of that. Except for one thing. You will never see my face. You'll never see my face. Would you take that deal? When we think about heaven, we talk about heaven. This is a perfect life, everlasting, everybody's happy, no more pain and suffering, but without God's face. St. Augustine closed with this question. He said, did a chill arise in your hearts when you heard those words, you will never see my face? Did that happen to you? This like, uh-oh, no, not that. And he says this, that chill is the most precious thing in you, for it is the pure love of God. That you would know that the face of God, that the delight of God, that the knowing of God would be worth all the suffering and all the pain and the worst life you could imagine because of the joy of knowing him and that you wouldn't give up that for the whole world. And Romans 8 is crying out to us and it's saying, don't take that deal because you will be offered that deal, not by God himself, but by all sorts of other things in one way or another. And it's a bad deal. And we lose if we take it. But the good news is the other side of the deal is actually so much better. Because God foreknew you. And that idea of foreknow, we get into predestination and talk about like eternity past and future and all the fun stuff. You do that in small group or something or buy your chemist or coffee and go at it. But it's not like I just, it's not just that God knew the score before the game, the idea of foreknow. Some translators even translate it foreloved. He loved you. Before the foundation of the world, he saw you and he loved you. And then he did whatever it took to show you his face and to make you like him. And guess what? He's not about making us into little images of Jesus just because he's a perfectionist and likes everything just so and wants you neat and tidy and presentable. He wants you clean. He wants you like him so that he can be with you because he loves you. That's why he justified you. And that's why Paul can say he also glorified in the past tense, even though he just said it hasn't happened yet. Because he saw the star. And he's showing it to you. And he's saying, it's worth it. Keep going. The face and the love of God are worth it. And he wants Jesus to be the firstborn, he says, among many brothers and sisters. The eternal trinity of Father, Son, and Spirit have conspired together in Romans chapter 8. Is what it is telling us from eternity past and into the future. They've been part of this loving conspiracy to get you into their family. And into their joy. And into their love. Because they are the greatest thing that there is. And the love of God is better than all of those things. Don't take the deal and keep pushing forward. You are not alone. You are so loved that even God himself would suffer for and with you. And even the spirit now is interceding for you before the father until the father finishes his job. And the son comes home and makes all things new. And in the words of Samwise Gamgee, everything sad becomes untrue. Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are worth it 
frankly, Lord, I've kind of lost track of myself. I don't even know what to pray, but I know that you do. And so I pray that you would pray it for me and for us tonight. Amen. Please stand. We're going to sing. So